0: think people are are given those gifts along the way maybe from other people maybe from dreams maybe from something they read in a book and um, like you said those are the things we cling to those are our touchstones to help us weave our way through this sinking quicksand of grief because that's exactly what I felt like this is the when you die podcast if it has to do with death
1: and dying we're talking about it Today's host is Kelly Edwards. Thanks for joining us. This is part two of our conversation with author Sherry Fitch. Sherry is an author, storyteller, a poet, a bookstore owner. At least she was all those things until 2018. In 2018, Sherry's world fell apart because she lost her son, Dustin. And I think we talk about how grief changes people, and we're going to talk about Sherry, who Sherry was before she lost her son and after and I'll leave it at that and just welcome you Sherry thanks so much for speaking with me today your mom gave you the 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 name of your book that's right so my
0: brother I lost my brother when he was 51 my father had died two years before that and we'd seen my mother go through an incredible process of grieving my dad but uh, like a caveat here my, my mom and my dad had been grief share counselors at their Anglican church and I remember thinking why do you do that? Like, why do you go and like listen to people who are grieving? I mean, I was younger and I was like, why do you want to talk about death? Right? That's exactly what you know what the, the opposite of what you're doing and your, yes. what you're doing. You know, but that was me. You know, in my twenties, like there's mom and dad, and I remember mom saying to me at the time, you know, Sherry, people are coming into this. You know, theirs was a you know a church based thing, but they weren't. They weren't. It wasn't there for like you know. Healing like church-based healing, it was more counseling and talking about the people that they'd lost. And she said, People are coming in here, Sherry, that have never talked about that accident that night that they lost their wife and child. You know, 20 years they've been living with this. And I and she goes, It's on it's on, and she said, I didn't talk about my brother's death. Like she lost a brother for a long, long time, and we're we're holding all this, we're holding all this, and so. It's really important that people talk about their losses. And so mom and dad had that. So she, and I remember dad saying, I'm so glad we did that because you know what? I wanted to make sure mom, your, you know, your mom had some strategies when I was gone. Cause he you knew he had a bad heart and he was going to go before. So he always made jokes about it. So, you know, she's got her strategy. She knows what she needs to do, you know? And so we, we did watch mom be very brave in the face of my father's death. I mean, in mourning, in grief, um, you know, it was a wonderful marriage. And so she was just, you know, the two year mark has just gone by and my brother got uh, cancer and he died very, very quickly after he got cancer, not of cancer, of pneumonia and heart attack. So it, what that was unbearable, right? Like that was, Mm -hmm. you know, your, your husband of 56 years is gone. Now you've lost your son out of the blue unexpectedly, really fast. And so of course again, my sister and I, we knew we had to, you know, we've got to be there for mom. And one day I was home, I She lives four hours away. And uh, I went into the bathroom to wash my, my face and, you know, wash my hands. I was washing my hands at this, at the bathroom sink. And I looked and there was a little tiny piece of paper tucked in the corner of the mirror in the bathroom. And um, I went, "Oh, Mom's writing, I, I recognized her handwriting. Mom's writing notes to herself. Like maybe she's forgetting things. Like imagine, like you know, yeah, my mom's old. She's forgetting things. And I leaned forward. I looked at the note, and the note said, "You won't always be this sad." And it just about. I was like, "Oh my god!" Mom's coming in here in the morning, getting up, brushing her teeth, and looking at that to tell herself she won't always be that sad. And so. I went out into the kitchen and, you know, I said, Mom, I I can't get over what you did, what, you know, you... I read the note and uh, and she said, Sherry, if I didn't do that, I wouldn't get through the day. I know it can't always be this bad. Mm-hmm. It will get... And she said to me when Dustin died, remember, Sherry, what I said, you won't always be this sad. You have to remember that. And she said, you will be sad. But the sadness will change in its texture and it will get softer. And because she had lived that, I believed her, Kelly. Oh. You know, somebody else could tell me that. And I go, yeah, whatever. You don't know what I'm going through. But my mother looked me right in the eye and I knew she knew what she
1: was talking of. Of course. Yeah. So yeah. her wisdom, yeah that goes a long way and i think that's why this book that you've put in the world for other people will be helpful to other people because your voice is and your heart understands yeah i i i was
0: you know, writing it was one thing, the decision to publish it was very difficult, Kelly, because it is so personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last thing a person wants to be seen to be, it, you don't want pity, you don't want to be pity, you don't want to be seen to be being at looking for sympathy, like that's people that we have pride, right. And, and so anything around grief, and you know, it's those words are you have my sympathy, you have my condolence. And I thought, Oh, I'm not, I don't, I'm not, this is not a cry for sympathy it's not a cry for pity it's but it is going back to what my parents did a way to share my grief it's a way to try to share you know i don't want to be alone with this grief it was very much i think the sharing of it and knowing that those other books when they shared with it it did comfort me it did speak to me i thought well then i'm a writer that's what writers do you you know you write and so i I can tell you it came out last November and um, I am every week, I am so humbled and so um, grateful because people will either call me or they will send emails or I'll get a letter in the mail. And there's such beautiful letters. And I, I was prepared for having the conversations around this book for a very small eight week period when we went and had a few conversations in different communities. And that's what I wanted conversations, not a book promotion or a book signing. I mean, we signed books, but we, it was a conversation about, about death, about, about grief. And, um, but that was it. I was like, Oh, okay, I'll do, you know, a quick little 10 day, um, conversational thing tour, whatever you want to call it stretched out over time. So I could kind of balance because I knew it wouldn't be easy. But um, since then, Kelly, it's the it's I've been I can only tell you I'm I'm so grateful that I wrote a book and published a book that I never, ever wanted to write. (laughs) And that's certainly a lot to be said for that. The kindness of strangers yeah absolutely uh, like people that you don't know um but it's this shared experience of of, mm-hmm. of, of a tribe you don't want to be a part of of a, of a of a of the undone you know and at the same time you know knowing that my book has comforted them also comforts me
1: mm-hmm.
0: right and so um uh, the people are i mean the, Let's talk a little bit about how, in the midst of that deepest pain, not only did I find an overwhelming gratitude that I'd never felt before, but life is so beautiful and people are so beautiful. And you have the eyes and the lens with which to see the beauty. And one day I woke up and I looked out the window and I said to my husband, Oh my God, honey, I have such a beautiful place to be sad in. And he said, did you just hear what you said honey go write that down a beautiful place to be sad in that's that's a good one hunt and i said but it's true and some people don't have a beautiful place to be sad in
1: mm-hmm.
0: they're they're in a refugee camp or they're in a you know one bedroom basement apartment all alone with their grief and 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 so you end up taking a step back and you actually do see i as as awful as this is i still know that i Um, have a glad responsibility to be grateful. And I have also the eyes with which I can see the incredible beauty in people and in the world around me. And of course, nature for me is probably my religion. And, um, you know, I mean, I I walk the labyrinth twice a day that we built for Dustin. So the beauty that the gifts in the midst of it all
1: there's such beauty in the midst of it all. And um and, and people I think have a hard time recognizing and reconciling that yeah, grief and joy or happiness can exist at the same time. They're
0: the I feel that they are the flip side in a way of each other, that they are, and I and I also even think the more the deeper that sorrow, the more you realize the love and the more your capacity to be open-hearted and embracing the beauty in the world becomes you're you're more finely tuned you know if we're if my, my husband used to say honey you're just a receiver with a big antenna you know? <laughs> and you know he, his background was in electronics and he worked <laughs> in media and, and things and, and and I believe that that if that's true then that that tuning fork that we all are that vibrates with the whole energetic universe I think that becomes more finely tuned and your perceptions you you even you see the beauty even more that is around you always but you see it through a very um maybe it's that your eyeballs have been so cleansed by so many tears (laughs) that your vision has been given to you in an in a new way and I I, that's certainly it really has been my my experience Mm -hmm. Um, that there is a kind of a seeing that you will never unsee, and um, uh, and a capacity to. F- feel others pain which you know most poets and writers are pretty empathetic people <laughs> anyhow um you don't know how much you want that to be more finely tuned. <laughs> you know right now um Kelly in this world what's been going on uh, I just I my heart is heavy I and, and you know I have to monitor I can't watch the news I um all the time it's it's it. I, I think you do learn how to take care of yourself and who you are at various stages in your um, grief journey, because right. you, you might go, okay, I heard the word pneumonia, Dustin died of pneumonia, you know, and then the COVID came, it's pneumonia, pneumonia. I tried to sl- I I, I, I block that out. Mm-hmm. And then I, everywhere I turned, the word was there, you know? So you have a right, I think in your grief to set boundaries that, make you feel safe emotionally and it's not for other people to say well you know she didn't come out of her house for three months well if that's what that person had to do in order to find some kind of balance to go out and get their groceries again so be it right so Mm -hmm. um you do let go of other people's judgments too i find i find it's you know I think as you get older, you do anyhow. And women, you know, sometimes the first part of our life is like, Oh, what do people think of us? And then it's like, I don't care what people think of us. And then it's, and then it's it's like, you know, well, I care about people and I I care more about what's making them tick than whether or not they are figuring out what makes me tick or whatever. So I, 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 I'm, I'm grateful for the gifts that my son's whole journey uh, gave me along the way. I mean, Dustin was diagnosed when he was six with the uh, severe neurodevelopmental delays, whatever that really meant at the time that we didn't know. But as life went on, you know, by the time he was 12, he was, was obvious he had uh, severe mental health problems. And then, Uh, by the time he was 15 he was suicidal and by the time he was 21 he had been pretty well down that path of addictions which happens so often but the wonderful thing is we had the last four years of our life it was his recovering soul it was his shiny soul he was such a good dad so I'm so happy that I have so many good memories and, Mm. and and, I mean, so many people aren't granted that, especially in that path of mental illness and addictions, but we were very, very fortunate, blessed really to have had, had that. I was thinking how Dustin had a knowingness, Kelly, you know, Mm. he, he, there was one day he was here. It was in December. He died in, March and one day he was putting on his coat and putting on his shoes and he's like you know mom I'm gonna die before you don't you and I went Dustin I don't know what he's saying don't say that and he's like mom mom and I said no Dustin I don't I don't like that I don't want you to say that and then what makes you say that and he said well you know mom I've done a lot of damage to my body you're gonna bury me and I just got up and left the room crying like I was upset and he was on his way out the door so I thought do I bring that up after what do I do but I think he had a sense I think there's I I mean he wasn't sick at that moment but I he had a kind of a knowingness um that he you know I I'll never forget that I'll never forget him saying that to me and I thought it's so odd and then of course I remembered it after he died and thought well you know he was he was he knew, and he, and he wanted to tell me that. <laughs> and, um, and to prepare you? Yeah, and I didn't want to hear it.
1: No, and it was
0: his body that gave out, you know. So maybe he was sick. I sometimes think he was maybe physically sicker than he led on to us, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know.
1: After Dustin died and you, you, you were on the, the path, the journey of grief, when was the first time you laughed?
0: <laughs> oh that's such a great question because it, it it was very um I think I put it in the book too. Yeah, I think I did. So so I mean at one point I remember saying I Crying this much gives you an ice cream headache. Like my head, I just felt like it was a continuous, I never got headaches, but I just had a headache the whole time. Like when you when you take ice cream and it's too cold and you get a brain freeze, that's how I felt. And this one night, it had been a rough day and we were getting in bed and God loved my husband, you know, who just loved Dustin too. And so, you know, it has a different way of grieving than me. But I looked at him and I said, honey, I'm so tired of crying. I'm so tired of crying. I just, I don't want to cry. I don't want to, cause I'm waking, I, I go to sleep crying and I wake up crying. I just wish I wouldn't wake up crying tomorrow. You know, and he, you know, reached out and patted me. He's like, I know, honey, I know. And you know, someday you won't wake up crying. Well, <laughs> You know, you put those things, I always say, put them out loud in the air because, you know, my answers come pretty fast to help me. So that morning, just before I woke up, I was dreaming and I was, I was, I was dreaming, I was listening to the weather report. But the weather report, was given by Elmer Fudd. <laughs> so, so, so do you know who I mean by Elmer Fudd I sure do. From, from Bugs Bunny, right? And yeah. Elmer Fudd talk wheelie, 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 do a wabbits and he talk we. So what I was hearing in my dream was it's gonna be a wee 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 sunny day. <laughs> and it was like, and in my dream, I was laughing, saying to my husband, oh my God, they've got Elmer in, giving the weather report. And I was laughing so hard in my dream. And wouldn't you know, I woke up laughing out loud. And I <laughs> hi I said Jill I, I you know I, I woke up laughing today I woke up I, and Elmer Fudd was giving the weather report and he of course God love him he's looking at me God, you know okay Elmer Fudd's giving the weather report and then I think I really scared him because I looked outside that window that was the same day I woke up laughing and I went and look honey the sun's out didn't don't you just think that it's really weird that ever since Dustin died the sun hasn't come out And he just gave me this look of, I don't know whether it was alarm. He was alarmed on one hand and then this incredible look of compassion. I still remember he was standing by his closet door and looked over at me and very gently, he said, Oh honey, the sun's been out before today. Uh And I said, no, it hasn't. It hasn't been out. I just kept thinking how weird that was that since Dustin died, the sun's never been out. And even as I was protesting Kelly, I, I, I knew that couldn't be possible because I think this was probably he died March 2nd. This would have been the end of April. It was that, you know, Mm -hmm. and I, you know, I, and I do, I think the day that you wake up laughing is the beginning of the beginning again and um, a way to go forward and see the sun. I mean, I I literally did not see the sun. I mean, I'm not, whether it's some kind of temporary blindness to light because you're in so much darkness, I don't know, but that's the way my brain worked and I actually didn't see the sun mm. for all those weeks, nor did I laugh. But Elmer fud say
1: <laughs> <laughs> Elmer. Really, it. it was a weary, really, weary really sunny. <laughs> and that's a gift. Who <laughs> knew?
0: And laughter, you know, I mean my God, once you can break through to that, um even now, you know, laughter, we, we make a really conscious effort. We, that's, you know, strategy number 5,025. But it's like, okay, it's time to turn on a comedy movie tonight. It's time to turn on a comedy show. It's, you know, give me Stephen Colbert. tonight. <laughs> you know, I just, you know, Carol Burnett, Carol Burnett, you know, uh, it's, I just that ability to go to that place where you can't help but laugh and I mean laughter just lifts the heart and it and it does and the other thing I think and I, and I know most people say this and it sounds so cliche but the, you realize at a certain point um the last thing Dustin would want is for me to be sad forever I had a responsibility to him to not and and I know that's the last thing he would have wanted I mean he. I just know that. And so, you know, and Jill would say that to me every once in a while. He'd go, you know, you know, Dustin would want that store, that little bookshop open. You know, Dustin, you know, would want you to be happy. And and so I don't feel, some people say, oh, they get guilty when they start to feel oh, days of, ha-. I don't, I don't feel that because I feel like that's that that's everything he loved me and that's everything he would want is to hear my laughter. Mm-hmm. and And, you know, he came to me in a dream. I to talk about this on a show like yours. I don't think a show like yours would, would find this strange, but, um, again, before I went to sleep, I, I, I was crying. And I said to Joe, I just want to see him again. I just want to see him again. I just have to see, I want to see him again. And knowing that you can't,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but that night I, I had a dream and in the dream, um, Jill and I were in an airport and it was really bright and the light and you know those plate glass windows and we knew we were waiting for Dustin he was going to come he was arriving on some kind of flight and he was going to come in that door any minute and sure enough he comes down this escalator and he comes through and he's four and. Dream. and he's that happy little babe that he was that happy little toddler boy of mine and he comes through and I rushed to him and I, and I, and I, I hugged him and I, I mean I could feel it I was hugging him and he was hugging me and then I pulled away like to you know I was on my knees because I got down on my knees because he was so short and I went and I looked down and he had this snowsuit on that he had when he was four and taped, duct taped to his snowsuit were two vinyl LPs you know records mm-hmm. and I went honey what what what's like I looked and I looked back at him and I said well well honey what's what's that for what's that and he said well you know mom how I'm always losing things <laughs> which, which is funny because he always was right <laughs> this is one of his and uh and before I could answer he said because you know mama you can't lose the music and, and um then he was gone and then I woke up and I didn't want to wake up and um, but What he said to me, that little little blonde hair, you know, and and looked at me. So, you know, mama, you remember, you can't lose the music. And I thought that was an incredible gift. Whatever your brain does, maybe it gives you what you need. I believe that it was a visitation, not a dream. Of course, I believe that it was too real. But that message, you can't lose the music. I knew he didn't mean like just music, music, although that was part of it. I knew he meant the music, you know, the music of life, which is still there. You cannot lose the music. And that message coming to me so early on also in the process, I think, really helped. Uh, My brother came after he died, too, in a dream, like the second day. I was so worried about my mom and my sister. And uh, he came, he was 14 and he was playing the guitar and he was like, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. It was like his goofy 14 year old self. And so again, a message from my brother saying, honey, don't worry, it's going to be all right. They'll be okay. And then from Dustin, like, you have to remember mama, you can't lose the music, which I, I took as a real sign. And I, you know, I did put music on for the first time that day and, and, and wow, what music can do to lift your heart and to, take you out of all those scrambly thoughts and those dark places. So yeah, that was a gift. And I, I think people are are given those gifts along the way, maybe from other people, maybe from dreams, maybe from something they read in a book. And um like you said, those are the things we cling to. Those are our touchstones to help us weave our way through this sinking quicksand of grief because that's exactly what I felt like I was, you know in quicksand mm-hmm.
1: and I think when we talk about grief grief is, is in different forms and we talk about the the big ones the big losses mm-hmm. um you know without acknowledging that there are little losses every day absolutely that, that we grieve that you know but uh you and I both live in Nova Scotia yeah Right now, we are communicating, uh, we're speaking over Zoom because, you know, what we would do in person, we're not doing now because of COVID. But what maybe a lot of people in the world don't know um, is that we've recently had, in the midst of this, a great tragedy in our community um, where many people lost their lives through a a violent act. Yeah. And um, you being a children's writer, I thought it was very lovely and poignant and important um, and I had mentioned it earlier this poem that you wrote called Because We Love, We Cry. I. And sometimes I can't say that out loud either because it makes me choke up. Yeah. Because it is very simplistic in one way, but it it's all there
0: is. You know, in writing children's books, um, you learn really early on simple does not equal easy. So very often people say, I want to be a writer, I'm going to write a children's book. And I'm like, And so I thought I'd start with something easy. I'll I'll, I'll start with writing a children's book, you know, Um, and I, and I would always say, well, I guess you might've come to the wrong class because it's simple does not equal easy. If you want it to be excellent, if you want it to be something that has lasting and lingering, you bring every bit of excellence to your craft in the writing of a children's book or novel or middle grade, whatever, as you would to any adult work. So excellent. I, obviously, I studied it in university. I have a real, um, but i the, and the longer I've written, and the, you know, thirty-three years. I mean, the more that simple does not equal easy, um, it comes back over and over and over again. And so, what happened um, is, of course, that Sunday. And and again, you're right. I think a lot of the rest of the world doesn't know. Twenty-two. You know, twenty. The largest um, mass killing in Canada, and it was like twenty, well, forty minutes down the road from me. So. It was so chaotic that day, and I uh, Pic, where the main um, tragedy happened, is it like really it's like three roads. It's like it's a very, it's even smaller than where I live in a little fishing village. And uh, so it was chaotic all Sunday, trying to locate the people that we knew and who are you safe? Are you safe? So there was this shock and trauma, and then we knew when we went to bed that night. You know, we knew that our closest friends were okay. But we were starting to find out, oh, there's 12. And then it was 14. And then it was the numbers just, it was just. And so we went to bed that night knowing that the next day the victims would start to be identified and that it was going to be the day from hell. And uh, so, again, I it was one of those times I, I did wake up crying that morning. Um, I must have been right there. And the CBC was on. And the first thing I heard was, that that one of the victims had been identified as an elementary school teacher and those are the people they are the people that have given me my life i mean a book can't be a book unless it's read and it's been read and put in the hands of children by elementary school teachers for 33 years i know these people and i knew that i would have known her and and then they said she has two children of her own but all i could think of oh dear god what are they going to tell her students? What are they going to tell her kids? What are they going to tell? And so I, and that was just it. It was like, what are they going to tell? And I just reached over. I, 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 I because the pen was there and I just started writing um, right away. And that came out in a burst. And I, but I'll tell you, I know it also came from my grandmother's heart because that was the hardest thing for me. I didn't know what to tell Jackson and Emma. How do you how do you explain the unexplainable? How you know, so that first line, you know, I think it is uh, I don't have it right here. I I I think it's some there are there are some things that make no sense, my child, or there are some things for which there are no answers, child, or whatever, however that came out. And and then it and as a poet, it's not we love because we cry. You could say we love because we cry, but it came out because we love, we cry. And just the inversion of that thing. And it just was, it wrote itself. And, and then the line was, even if we are not together, together, let us cry. Remember, there is so much love. Because we love, we cry. And that was the refrain. And it just flowed. And I was very grateful that they asked me to read it on the national vigil. Because I love this province. and. I know what it's like to not be able to find answers to tell children things for which there are no answers. So um, it felt right. It felt right that I was able to, um, to do that. And I, I think many of us, Kelly, I'm sure you are too. It's like, it's still, it's like, it's, we're still reeling from it. I -hmm. started having panic attacks after, after a year where panic attacks had gone away after I conquered them the first year of Dustin's death and got everything under control. But I mean, I think for a lot of us, we were re-traumatized and, uh, and, and shocked and, and had some fallout emotionally for so many of us and, You know, even now I walk my labyrinth and I, you know, they're the people that I bring with me into the labyrinth, the victims, the victims, families, their children, the students. You know, I when I walk the labyrinth, I walk there with intention. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You know, I mean, we built it for Dustin because Dustin was a landscaper and uh, Dustin was a very simple guy and he was a landscaper. And I, again, woke up from sleep one night going labyrinth. And I told him, labyrinth, I used to walk the labyrinth in Washington, D.C., and I haven't thought about it for years, but that's what, and he's like, sure, that's what we'll do. And my oldest son found the place in the pasture, and, and just rocks and grass is all it is. And I, I find that ritual of walking, um, you, you release walking into the labyrinth, in the center you receive And then walking out, you return, as in returning to the real world. Mm -hmm. And a labyrinth is not a maze, of course. A labyrinth, you go in and you go out the same way. You don't get lost. There's one path to the center. And it's just a meditative and uh, a a calming, mindful way to to gather those fragmented parts, again, of yourself and try to kind of feel the wholeness. And uh, I found the labyrinth walking, the memorial labyrinth walking, really, really uh, important.
1: And it's very symbolic, really, uh, of, of of our walking through grief. It is. That there is that path in, and it can feel confusing and lost, but you do come out the other side. Exactly. And then it repeats itself, too. Like, that, that rhythm, I, th- I remember thinking,
0: yes, release, receive something, and then return. And then it'll be again. You'll have to release and receive, return. Like, it's not necessarily it doesn't end. It's ongoing. It's kind of like a spiral. I remember C.S. Lewis in that book said, you know, grief is a is is a circle, but other people would say, well, it's a spiral. And yes, but it's, you're never, every time you go into it and face it and come out the other side, every time it, you're gonna be di- it's, you're going to be, it's going to be different the next time. And uh, I, I honestly think like for some people, it might just be walking along the beach for me, my ritual of labyrinth walking has because it 's so intentional. release what do I have to release today? um you know forgiveness like that what, what we were talking about you know, like let that go, let that go, and the center be still it 's not like the heaven's open and you hear the voice God or anything like that <laughs> it's mm. just like a, a maybe you know there'll be a you just pause and and be mindful and just be open. And it might be a couple hours there, and then return, as in returning to the real world. And for me, it's also a way. Um, you know, you've heard, I'm sure, Kelly, the thin place. You know that 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 the, the the world between worlds, right, where the veil is very thin between this world and and the afterworld or the world beyond, whatever you want to call it, in the, the different realms. And I'm and I, again, as an artist, as a poet, I I, I very much you know, am open to the idea that, you know, they're never very far away. And and this reality is only one that we perceive in this lifetime, but I'm very uh, sensitive to other energies and things. And I I find that the labyrinth walking allows space for that, allows space for, um, well, what we might call the sacred, you know, And, and, um, you know, William Blake said, "Imagination is divine," and maybe some people will call that magical thinking. That you know, that oh, okay, I feel that he's not very far away, but it works. And if it works, and I feel close to my dustin, then I'm going to do that for as long as I want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I need the closeness, and I need him to not be far away. And um, I don't. I used to light up candle every morning, and now, going into year three, I realize I haven't. Lit it every morning, and a part of me was like, Oh my goodness, oh, oh, not feeling guilty, but just like, Oh, I forgot. And then I'm thinking, Oh, I don't have a need to do that mm. like the same way that I did, you know. And maybe I'll light it at the end of the day, but you can see that change too. You know, at first it was like I couldn't do anything until I lit that candle, it, it held a candle, the a candle holder that he gave me when he was eight years old, and they were two angels. Mm. Yeah, I know. That's kind of weird. It's like, okay, of course the candle holders he gave me are two angels and I'm lighting them every morning. (laughs) (laughs) That's what, that's where we get our comfort in the ritual. In the rituals. And, 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 and I don't think like, I, I am a woman of faith. I have a deep, deep faith, but my faith is not um, conventional faith. And it's, and it's not necessarily what I would, you know, it's not under the umbrella of a, of one denomination or anything, or even Christian, because I I, I think God is bigger than that. What I call God or love um, is, is much so, so much bigger than that. And when I say wholeness, I think that is one thing that if you have some kind of understanding of there being something, call it mystery, (laughs) because we really don't know, nobody knows. (laughs) And I, I think, well, if you're open to that, then, you know, you can keep returning to that. And that's what you're, that's what your wholeness is growing closer to that incredible love called mystery, mystery called love. And I, I, that's a part of who I am, but I felt it since I was three years old before I ever understood anything religious. I mean, I just knew I was never alone (laughs) in the world. So yeah, I feel that very, um, again, I'm, I'm grateful. I have a faith based understanding of the world um, because i I, I can 't even possibly conceive of, of of losing a child and, and not having um, the understanding in my soul and my spirit and my
1: heart that i that I do um, yeah it's important and so when you wake up today who is, who is sherry Fitch today?
0: Sherry Fitch is someone who wakes up and still does her hour of meditation every day. Well, first of all, I get, I get, I get up and I get my coffee and then I go back to my space <laughs> and then I do my little rituals and stuff. Um, I think Sherry is somebody who recognizes that I'd like to think I'm more whole than I actually am because it doesn't take a lot to kind of Make me feel unravelled. To be really honest, and I don't. I say screw stability. Like who needs stability? <laughs> like I, I'm not. Telling, you know, I mean, who? I, I'm never going to be this. i You know, this is not me. I'm not going to be stable, zen person ever. But I think I'm more of who I am, and that sounds incredibly amazing to me to be able to say that to you. It's not that I'm less of who I am. I feel I'm more of who I am. There's been a transformation burned by sorrow I've gone to that pit of hell and I have seen what's in the pit of hell and I've climbed back up and I don't want to go back down very deep again but I I feel that I'm more of who I was but Do I know who that is? You know, I used to say, oh, life is a dot-to-dot puzzle and I'm still trying to figure out what picture I'm trying to make. (laughs) Well, well, maybe I thought I had, you know, at a certain age, you know, connected those dots a little bit more. But I know that, that Dustin's death, losing Dustin, threw that all out the window. And I am regathering that unraveled and undone person. And that's still a process. I feel the ground underneath my feet is not even... More solid. I just think I know how to float on that ground a little bit better than I did before, and not expect it to be solid. And and that's you know that's just my understanding at today. But I, I I'm aware also in, in in what's happened here in Nova Scotia and with the COVID and everything. I'm hearing so many people say things that are exactly the things you understand and come to realize and perceive in that immediate aftermath of losing someone in the grief journey. It's so similar. So I'll hear people say, you know, well, you know, there's so many things we took for granted, and um, and you know, I, I I just hope the world doesn't go back to the way it it was because, like now, I know what's important. I mean, spending this time with my kids, and you know, I mean, it's that clarity that people are getting in this horrible situation, the 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 truths that that emerge from it, that can only I hope make people more human. Now, as I'm saying that, Kelly, what's happening? <laughs> I just, I, I, right now it's not so good today, is it?
1: Mm-hmm. But I'm
0: thinking, you know, out of all of this, out of all of this, please God, you know, let there be some new world order, uh, new sense, a, a world transformed. I have to give a talk to the graduates of 2020. I did in one in New Brunswick and I, they asked me to do, you know, one for the ones here in Nova Scotia and, All I could think of is now I'm looking to them. I'm looking to them to be the planet resetters, you know, Mm -hmm. not the jet setters, (laughs) the resetters. And I Mm -hmm. keep thinking, you know, be the reset because they have learned one of the hardest lessons that a lot of people (laughs) take a whole lifetime to learn, which is guess what? Plans go sideways things change, you're going to be disappointed, there's going to be loss, you're going to not have, you know, the graduation you want. And all of a sudden, you know, they're already a part of history, because that class of 2020, at that important time in their life, just before they're ready to go out into the world, the world's, well, I just don't want to say it, because you'll have to beat me out. But right (laughs) now, (laughs) you know, what they're faced with, and so there's only, you know, one way to go forth, and it's that they have been given a really hard, hard life lesson at this uh, juncture in their life. And I think that you're going to see emerging from that, you know, young people that will go forth and and start to maybe transform this planet in a way that it needs to be. I I think it's the way poets want it to be. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think it's the way our theologians, a lot of them, not I'm not saying religious uh, leaders, but theologians would like us, they, they see a world that's uh, bigger than our own self-interest i think there will maybe be more of a collective humanity I- i'm hopeful um and that mm-hmm. I, I don't. it's t- it's hard today today is it's hard to uh, given the the date that we're doing this and what's happened this past week but and uh don't you think Kelly that if you do if you do understand at some level that grief is a love story that really you have been gifted with this pain because you've been gifted with so much love that you felt for. like that to me in that moment when I discovered it's not like who wants to feel the pain I'm not saying I'm a masochist and I want to feel that pain because believe me I don't want to ever go back to where I was in that first year those first weeks However, there is something so incredible in realizing that that pain is proportionate to the love, mm. and then you think how huge the love is. It's just so huge, and in that there is so much beauty and there is so much hope. Sherry, thank you so much for talking You're with me. So welcome, thank you. It's been very good for me.
1: Oh, I'm glad. Well, and your book's been very good for so many. So thank you for that. Thank you. This conversation
0: is brought to you by the When You Die Project. From existential afterlife questions to palliative care and the nuts and bolts of green burial, if it has to do with death, we're talking about it. WhenYouDie.org